0: Uh, as though it has been filled with anger and rage, um, with all kinds of fake news and conspiracy and uh, you know, um, just anger and upsetness and people who used to love each other and used to speak to each other, now not speaking to each other anymore, uh, Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners incredibly fraught because of all of this flooding into uh, our family spaces and as Christians, um, all too often we've been caught up uh, in the way the rest of the world uh, has acted, um, and it raised the question should that be? Or, or, or does the gospel shape us in such a way that, that we ought to respond differently? How, how do we engage? the public square? Um, do we engage it in such a way that we see it as a, as a zero sum game? Um, I have to win and you have to lose, or if you win, then I'm going to lose. And it really is kind of a zero sum game, everyone out for themselves. How, how should Christians lean into engaging their neighbors, um, and this thing that we call the, the public square? Uh, with this first talk, and uh, uh, I'm doing this one by default, I asked a number of people to come tonight uh, to talk about this, and they all turned me down. And so you get Sean talking about uh, courtesy and civility. Um, but, but I really do believe that, that these are the virtues that as Christians we offer the world. Uh, that These are virtues that, that come from the gospel itself, and they are, they are particularly public virtues that help us love our neighbors. We, you know, we know that the two great commandments are love God and, uh, and love your neighbor. Well, what does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, it certainly doesn't look less than courtesy and civility. That, that, that's, a, that's, that's ground floor, right? Which should be more than courtesy and civility, perhaps, um, but it, it shouldn't be less than. And all too often, y'all, let's just be honest, we've been less than as Christians in, in the way we've engaged our neighbors, and the way we've engaged the public square. I, I, the word civility um, really stands in for a kind of, of public politeness, if you will. Um, but it's, it's not kind of the, um, as, as a, as a Southerner who goes back to uh, the hills of Virginia all the way to 1750, I can speak of it in these ways. But it's not that kind of, of public politeness where you put on a veneer of cultural politeness uh, and, and then meanwhile back home around the dinner table you're shredding the other individual. Um, it's, it's really a, civility is a, a virtue of public politeness that helps the public square work. The word civility actually has in there the word civil, draws from the Latin word civitas, which is the word in Latin that we get translated city, or, or, or uh, yeah, city or politic. Um, it's how our polity works. If we're going to have civics, uh, if we're going to be a, a public square, civility is that public virtue that helps it all work. And, and, and civility and courtesy as a form of, of public politeness, I'm going to argue, is, is rooted in the very virtues of the, of the Bible. It, the, the gospel itself produces these virtues in us. But why do we need to return to these virtues? As I said, uh, the public square feels incredibly angry right now. Um, Uh, Some of you, many of you perhaps are on social media, whether Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or some other uh, social media uh, form that came out of 2020 and frustrations with the major platforms. And you don't have to scroll far uh, before you you run across profound anger and rage. I do think we need to stop and say, that's not new in American life. I mean, Go back to the election of 1800, um, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, uh, in which uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, uh, political campaign, or excuse me, John Adams' political campaign surfaced the truth about Sally Hemings and put that out in the newspapers. And, and Thomas Jefferson tried to make the same claims, actually false, uh, about John Adams. All of this was in the public press, uh, and there was profound unrest in the public square. Uh, or go to 1860, uh, one of our greatest American presidents, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and what was, what was being said of him in the public square was they called him King Africanus I. And would depict him in political cartoons as a primate um, because of his defense of African Americans and civil rights. Um, Fast forward into the Progressive Era, uh, and you'll find similar things uh, in the McKinley campaign or or Theodore Roosevelt campaign. So so there's this is not new anger and rage is the way politics has seemed to work in American life and the public square has seemed to work, but there does seem to be some some new circumstances at work at least in among Christians or those who call themselves Christians um, that seems to that seems to have created a a kind of hyper-individualism and a a distrust of others and institutions. And then because of the hyper-individualism and the distrust of institutions and others, leads to the rationalization of simply dehumanizing others in the way we talk about one another, and the way we uh, write about one another. There was an article a couple of days ago in Christianity Today by a historian named Daniel Williams, who teaches at the University of West Georgia. Um, Daniel has written a number of books. uh, I call him Daniel because he's a friend of mine. Um, A number of books on uh, politics and the religious right. He wrote a really well-received book on the history of abortion and abortion politics around Roe v. Wade. Um, This article, though, uh, was titled, Many White Southern Evangelicals Are Now Lapsed. Churchgoers. And um, part of what he uh, does in the article is he taps into a couple of significant surveys, particularly the Pew Research Center's Religious Landscape Survey and the 2018 General Social Survey. These are massive surveys of of, um, uh, all sorts of things in American life. And he was able to analyze the data from those surveys in order to try to understand how Southern evangelicals in particular, people like you and me, how, how we have kind of played out our faith in relationship to the public square over the last four or five years. Um, and what he ends up discovering uh, as part of the data, this is his summary point, I, I won't bore you with all the stats that he quotes, but, but his summary point is this, in short, uh, white Protestants in the South who don't attend church anymore. Uh, part of what the analysis showed was that about 30% of self-identified Southern Baptists rarely or never go to church. So they, they call themselves Southern Baptists, but they are essentially de-churched. And of course, Southern Baptists, uh, as we used to say in Mississippi, there's more Baptists than people in Mississippi. Um, so, you know, when you're studying Southern Baptists, you're really studying uh, all sorts of Southern evangelical folks. Um, So he says, white Protestants in the South who don't attend church anymore haven't changed their politics or most of their religious beliefs. They are still generally fundamentalistic when it comes to the Bible. They're still strong law and order pro-military Republicans who believe in a Southern civil religion where people are free to pray in schools but not get abortions. They still identify as Protestant Christians, and based on other surveys, they probably still call themselves evangelical, but their understanding of evangelical Protestant Christianity has taken away most of the grace and left behind a deeply suspicious individualism where law and order and self-defense are paramount. Um, he goes on toward the, the very end. And he says, it seems, therefore, that when white Southerners stop attending church, They don't lose the church's political conservatism, moralism, or individualism. Instead, they become hyper-individualistic, strongly devoted to law and order, overwhelmingly political conservative, if they vote at all, but they're also cynical um, and distrustful for others. Um, Part of where he ends up going uh, in talking about that is the deep distrust of institutions coupled together with the hyper-individualism, makes um, de-churched former uh, southern churchgoers extremely suspicious and extremely cynical about everybody else around them. Does that sound like recent politics in America? Does that sound like the public square at all? Um, Of course, uh, it seems that that kind of hyper-individualism and distrust Um, that uh, would seem to rationalize then, I'm out for myself. I I can't trust these institutions. I can't trust the church. I can't trust my local government. I can't trust... Doctors or medicine, certainly COVID exacerbated that sense of distrust of even medical institutions. I, I, can't, I can't trust, so I'm going to operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion, and I'm going to bring then my anger and frustration into the public square and, and, and express that in ways that are profoundly uncivil and discourteous, uh, and in fact, slanderous, libelous, and downright mean. Um, To just give you two examples of what that kind of looks like, Um, and I'm using these examples because I'm intimately familiar with them, Um, here's an article uh, from a website, thankfully that no longer exists, called Pulpit and Pen, uh, titled, Critical Race Theory Syllabus from Reformed Theological Seminary Released to the Public. Um, A student at Reformed Theological Seminary has pointed concerned Christians to extremist critical race theory syllabus taught by Dr. Sean Michael Lucas, the Chancellor's Professor of Church History, uh, and he goes on to unpack uh, how allegedly the syllabus for the class Gospel and Race um, was radical uh, in promoting uh, multiculturalism, identity politics, critical theory, and all the rest. Um, the syllabus doesn't do anything like that at all. Um, the, the entire article is actually an exercise in guilt by association, genetic fallacy, and all the rest. Um, but, but ultimately, what, what this represents is this, the kind of mud-stirring, the kind of uh, hyper-individualism uh, uh, hyper and distrust of institutions, because ultimately, I get linked with Ligon, who is uh, a socialist, surprise, surprise to you know, you're a socialist. Um, A socialist and all kinds of nefarious things attributed to him, and RTS uh, is utterly horrible. Uh, As an aside, the person behind this website, J.D. Hall, the reason why the website no longer exists is he was uh, arrested for uh, drug possession, uh, sexual solicitation, and uh, and ultimately was defrocked by his church. Um, But, uh, it's this, this actual article, I know for a fact, was distributed even among our own church members. Um, another example, um, this one from the website Iron Inc. Uh, and it was, this was uh, end of January 2021. Sean, Dr. Sean Michael Lucas, and typical cultural Marxism amongst the seminary professorate, um, this is, uh, Iron Inc. was, uh, a website by a man named Brett McAtee, and he says, I do not like Dr. Lucas. All right, that's a good way to start, um. I have read enough of his material, scanned some of his course syllabi, and have viewed some of his teaching sessions online to know that Jude would have labeled him as a blight among your love feasts. If, as Michael Dukakis said about Ronald Reagan in the 1988 presidential campaign, a fish rots from the head first, Dr. Sean Michael Lucas is just one example of how our seminary leadership is a rotting fish. Um... He goes on, though, to do a play on my name. I've always liked my initials, never have liked my first name. I like my initials, S-M-L, because it's small, medium, large, right? Um, So, uh, but he turns that into Dr. S-N-M, as in sadomasochism, uh, Dr. S-N-M Lucas, and the whole article mocks me in that way. Um, Again, this article was distributed among our church members. Um, thankfully, this is no longer available on the internet. I guess uh, somebody got to him and he took it down. Uh, you need to know that Brett McAtee was actually defrocked and deposed from ministry from the Christian Reformed Church, um, which again signals that when we go to try to, to find out uh, all sorts of things about people, we need to make sure we understand the sources we are accessing. Uh, they may not be, believe it or you can't believe everything you read on the internet right? It's kind of shocking. I, I bring those up, um, not simply, you know, to whatever to make you aware of them, but they serve as, I think, an example of the kind of, uh, anger and rage and mud stirring and, uh, honestly, uncivility, um, discourtesy, um, and really, the kind of uh, anti-Christian virtue, if you, if you could have, you know, anti-Christian vice would be better, um, that seems to percolate uh, in the public square. So, so part of the reason why we wanted to start tonight by talking about courtesy and civility as the, the virtues of how we actually engage in the public square is because, y'all, we, we haven't been doing that. Um, There's one other factor at work, though, Um, and and I'm going to talk about this again uh, in a couple of weeks on Sunday morning uh, in a different way um, when we talk about compassion uh, is is the way we relate to one another. There's a a move afoot among some evangelicals um, to dismiss compassion on the one side or winsomeness on the other side. Uh, as virtues that Christians are to practice. Um, I'll mention it again in a couple of weeks, but the, the current president of Bethleh- Bethlehem Baptist College and Seminary, the college and seminary that was associated with Bethlehem Baptist Church up in Minneapolis, the church that John Piper pastored for many years, uh, the current president, Joe Ringy, actually wrote a piece called Empathy is a Sin that we shouldn't actually empathize with others. Because if we show compassion to others, uh, even if they're in sin, we are actually aiding and abetting them in their sin. Uh, and we shouldn't show them empathy. We should actually give them law to drive them to repentance. Um, in terms of winsomeness, or, or if you will, gentleness, uh, civility, courtesy, uh, there was an article in First Things, uh, the Catholic magazine that has a very significant online presence by a man named James R. Wood, um, where he critiques Tim Keller. Uh, And in the midst of his critique of Keller, um, he he talks first about how Keller had made such an impact on him. Um, But then he says, Keller's winsome approach led him to great success as an evangelist. But he also maybe subconsciously thinks about politics through the lens of evangelism in the sense of making sure that political judgments don't prevent people in today's world from coming to Christ. His approach to evangelism informs his political writings and his views on how Christians should engage politics. Um, uh, A little bit later in the article, he says, um, talking about himself, I started to recognize a danger to this approach. If we assume that winsomeness will gain a favorable hearing, when Christians consistently received heated uh, heated pushback, we will be tempted to think our convictions are the problem. If winsomeness is met with hostility, it's easy to wonder, are we in the wrong? Thus the slide towards secular culture's reasoning is greased. A secular-friendly politics has problems similar to a secu- uh, seeker-friendly worship. An excessive concern to appeal to the unchurched is plagued by the accommodist, accommodationist t- temptation. So again, to be gracious or to be civil, to be courteous, to be winsome, is actually the first step towards the slide towards liberalism. Um, Actually, that's a a massive misunderstanding of, in my opinion, of what Tim has been about for 30 plus years. Um, But I mention it more as a signal of the kinds of criticisms that that seem to want to justify that in our current cultural moment, what we need is forceful people. Uh, people are willing to fight with every weapon at one's disposal. And if they need to use harsh, cutting words and actions to achieve their ends, so be it. Because the public square is a zero-sum game. And we need to fight to save America. Well, of course, we love our country. Uh, and we, we prize the civilization that we have here. But, but the ends never justify the means. And the fact of the matter is that, that civility and courtesy, gentleness and winsomeness, graciousness, um, these are actually biblical virtues. And so I want to show you that in your Bibles. Um, uh, if you have your Bible, you can look at these places. Um, if you have your phone or you can just listen. Um, but, but when we talk about civility, courtesy, honor, um, we are talking about virtues that really flow from uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and you remember, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, um, Gentleness serves as that fruit of the Spirit that works its way out toward others, toward our neighbors, um, toward the public square, as honor, courtesy, and civility. It's notable that the Apostle Paul in Titus, um, uh, when he's giving instructions to Titus on how he's to teach people to live out the gospel— He says in Titus chapter three, verse one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, not just to people who agree with you, um, but to people who disagree with you, not to people, just to people who are like you, but to people who are unlike you. These are seven things that actually flow from the gospel. Why are we to do that? Well, Paul goes on. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. These seven vices, that's who we were. But when the loving kindness of Jesus appeared, he saved us and changed us. And the virtues that flow from Jesus changing us are the seven things he mentions in verses 1 and 2. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul tells Timothy to, to, to instruct leaders to be the same way. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, And the Lord's servant, not just pastors, but elders and deacons and leaders, um, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Uh, after being captured by him to do his will. So even opponents, certainly within the church, but by extension then that would be also in the public square with our neighbors. Uh, how are we to be as the Lord's servants? We're to correct with gentleness and not to quarrel. Um, well, why does Paul give these instructions? Why, uh, why, do, why do they show up in Titus and Second Timothy? Well, because they flow from the fruit of the Spirit, which is gentleness. But, but Peter has the same kind of language. Um, we might skip over it because at it, it, well, some level it seems obvious, but in the midst of a number of exhortations in First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And then, chapter 2, verse 17, Honor everyone. That word honor is the same word that Paul will use in Ephesians 6, quoting the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. What does honor look like? Well, when we honor our parents, we hold them in high esteem. We, if we have to remonstrate with them, we, we remonstrate with them as 1 Timothy 5, as one who is our father. But we do so with gentleness and with respect. Well, Peter says we're to honor everyone. Not just our friends, but, but also our enemies. Not just those who agree with us politically, culturally, socially, but also with those who disagree with us politically, culturally, socially. We are to honor them. Uh, Paul will echo that in Romans chapter 13 in, in the midst of the section of, of, uh, that we often think of uh, as Paul talking about the relationship, uh, our relationship to the state at the end of that paragraph in Romans 13 verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is clearly in the public square. We're talking about relating to authorities and Paul says we're to respect and honor. Why does that make sense? Well, because we're the fruit of the spirit is gentleness, um, and this is how we 're to be we 're to treat others uh, submissive to all authorities, and we 're to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy uh, to all whom we come across uh, as in, in, in a public way, in the public square um, there 's other places uh, you can look, Second Corinthians chapter ten and verse one, Paul talks. Uh, to the Corinthians, appealing to them with the gentleness and meekness of Christ, or First Peter chapter three verses fifteen and sixteen, where he says we are to make. This is actually a, a really good one. First uh, Peter chapter three verse, sorry, I was going to summarize, uh, but I'm not now. Um, chapter three verse fifteen, when he says, "But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy." And we love this first part because we love apologetics always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but then we skip over the next part, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So that even as we're giving a defense of the gospel, we do so with these virtues coming forth of civility and and courtesy, gentleness and respect. Um, Not only are there discreet Biblical verses that speak to this, though, there's actually theological grounding. We are to treat others this way out of a recognition of commonness. Um, we, we have a common humanity with all those who we run across, no matter how different they may seem to, to you, that person, uh, whether politically, culturally, or socially, um, whether they're gender-confused or uh, or in a same-sex relationship, or, um, or in a, in, a, in a horrific pattern of sin or crime, whatever it is, doesn't matter who you come across. You share a common humanity with them. They are made in God's image. Um, every single person you run across is, and so we we treat others with civility and courtesy because we recognize, uh, as the sanitation strike marchers loudly proclaimed, they're men. And they're women. Remember, that's, that was the sign that the sanitation workers carried in 1968. I am a man. There's a common humanity. I need to be treated as a human being. And we, above all, should say, yes, we have this in common, made in the image of God. But, but we also have in common our common life together. We're part of a community. We're part here of a community called Memphis and then smaller communities within that. But, but that word community, of course, has buried in it at common unity. Our very community signals a common life together that, that we must live out of. But, but we also treat others this way, not just because of who we are by creation, but also by redemption. We've come to know a gentle savior, a Savior who, even when he, he upbraids uh, the Pharisees in Matthew 23, what does he do at the end of the chapter? He weeps over Jerusalem. Um, he, he wounds in order to heal, and his heart is revealed uh, in, in his weeping. Of course, famously in, in Matthew chapter 11, um, Jesus tells um, the crowds after he prays to the Father, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My friend Dane Ortland makes the point that, that when Jesus describes himself this way, this is one of the very few places in the Bible where Jesus describes himself in an attribute. And when he goes to do so, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, which is why, of course, Paul will appeal to the gentleness and meekness of Christ. So. So these virtues I'm talking about, um, courtesy, civility, that flow out of the virtue of gentleness, um, these are rooted uh, not just in discrete biblical verses, but in who we are by creation and redemption. Of course, we need to ask the question, or, or at least pause and say, what does this not mean? You know, Some of you are here, and you're listening to me talk about gentleness and civility and courtesy, and you're saying... Well, Sean, there's just some times where you can't be courteous. There's just some times where you can't be civil. There, there's certainly some times where you got to be rough and tough and harsh in order to drive your point across. So, so you, there's got to be an exception. Well, we'll get there. But, but, but out of that kind of questioning that maybe you have in your head, I, I do need to kind of step back. And, what does this not mean? When I'm talking about courtesy and civility... What do I not mean? Well, courtesy and civility and talking about those virtues as we engage in public issues and engage in the public square, it doesn't mean that truth is unimportant. Uh, I once had someone that met with me and um, uh, he's, he said to me, You know, Sean, I, I've come to believe, you know, Jesus, grace and truth are found in Jesus. I've come to believe that some people are grace people and some people are truth people. Which are you? Well, I don't want to be either. I want to be both, right? Because grace and truth in Jesus. Um, but the, the supposition behind the question was, if you were a grace person, you weren't going to be a truth person. Of course, the other side of that is if you're a truth person, you're not very gracious, right? I mean, it's, it was an interesting way of putting it, but I, I'm afraid that sometimes people hear some of us talk about gentleness and civility and courtesy and, and, and they might come away thinking that we don't care about truth. No. No, truth is important. We, what we're after is a convicted civility or a set of civil convictions. Um, we don't believe in a both sides approach to truth claims. Um, we come to this book um, and we say, this is the inspired and errant and infallible word of God. Our consciences are bound to scripture uh, and, and this sets the standard of truth for us. Uh, and so when we try to then take this Bible and apply it to public issues, I'm going to make a case Sunday that that's in fact part of God's mission. God's mission includes everything, not just our souls. But when we try to come to this Bible and apply it to public issues, it's right for us to do so. Um, there are truth claims concerning who God is and who human beings are, concerning sexuality and abortion, concerning justice, concerning economics and all the rest that we can find in the pages of Holy Scripture, at least by way of the principle of general, general equity. And so, so, yes, we need to speak what is true, but we speak what is true out of the virtues of gentleness. As we've already heard, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must instruct and correct uh, with gentleness. Um, Likewise, uh, uh, again on this point, truth is important and we're actually called to make judgments about all sorts of issues. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter five uh, decries what was happening in Israel uh, where some were calling good evil and evil good. Uh, and he was saying how wrong that was and how in fact God's judgment was coming upon Israel for that. And, and of course, that's exactly right. We have to do the same today. Uh, it is right for us to say that those who call evil good and good evil are wrong. And if they don't repent, they're in danger of the judgment of God. That That's it, absolutely a gracious and winsome thing to do, to say the truth and to, to offer judgment about all sorts of issues. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, calls us to test the spirits, uh, to put the spirit of the age or the spirit of what we hear to the task. It's right for us to do that. So, so when I'm talking about these virtues of, of courtesy and civility and gentleness, it doesn't mean that truth is important. Truth is still important, but it's grace and truth together. We speak the truth in love with graciousness, with civility, with courtesy, with gentleness, because that's actually the way others have space to hear us. Likewise, what, what I don't mean, it, it does not mean, when we talk about courtesy and civility, it does not mean that we never speak out or work against injustice. I mean, as Christians, we're in a variety of spheres in our public lives uh, where, where we are to be working as salt and light. Light shining the light of the gospel and the truth of God's word through our lives and the way we treat others. Salt as a, as a preservative for the, the, the world around us so that it doesn't destroy itself. Uh, We bring the virtues of of common general grace to bear and the general operations of God's spirit in the work that we do in the various spheres we find ourselves. So we certainly belong in our public spheres, uh, working for, uh, working as salt and light and and working to bring justice to bear. Um, Not just in terms of racial justice or economic justice, but justice for the unborn. Uh, Next week, I'm so glad that Nate Kellum will be talking about how we as Christians now are to engage the life issue post row That's right for us to do so. And in fact, we need to be the ones in the front lines as we've been in the front lines, continuing to care for the unborn and for the pregnant uh, mom and all the rest. Um, we, we are certainly to be at work um, in the public sphere. Um, but the virtues of civility and courtesy, of gentleness, of um, gentleness, don't mitigate against that. It actually, they actually serve us well as we try to deal and help others. So then what does is, what is civility and courtesy mean? Um, how does this actually play out? Well, b- before I get to how we treat others, because most clearly, civility and courtesy and gentleness, they, they come the rubber hits the road when we engage with others two prior things. We have to step back first and, and think about what we're seeking to achieve. Um, and, 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 and here, I, just, I want to observe, uh, as someone who has spent my most of my academic and public life thinking about issues related to public theology, I wrote my dissertation on Robert Louis Dabney's Public theology, I've written quite a bit on the spiritual mission of the church and the church in relationship to the state. So, I mean, I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Um, I really do believe that the the war model of cultural engagement is profoundly unhelpful. Um, The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, in that whole context of spiritual warfare, he makes it quite clear we're not, we're not fighting with each other. W- what are we fighting against? The, the forces of darkness, <laughs> you know, the, the cosmic powers in, in the heavenly places, uh, and how do we fight? We, we don't. We stand, right? We, we have helmets and breastplates, and we have uh, our loins gird and our feet a shod, and we have a sword, which is the Bible, but really all God's asking us to do is stand, don't run, don't fall down, right? Um, the war model as a, as a way of thinking about how we engage with our neighbors on a range of political or public issues is just profoundly unhelpful. Uh, a better model, I think, for us as believers is, is as those who are convicted about certain truths, about what the Bible says, we find those places where we can cooperate with others. And the pro-life movement is a, is a beautiful example of that. Um, we, we disagree with our Catholic neighbors on a range of doctrinal issues. But as Francis Schaeffer taught us to do, we became co-belligerents with them uh, in the pro-life uh, issue, especially in regards to Roe v. Wade. And, you know, and thankfully, all of that labor bore fruit this past year. Um, so, so thinking about what does the Bible say and then finding places where we can work with others toward the common good and areas of common commitment... That's, that's actually, I think, a better way of thinking towards what we're seeking to achieve. We, we really are trying to be more modest, I think, in what we can accomplish. Uh, each of us in our individual spheres or all of us working together, um, we're only going to take two or three steps toward the kingdom of God. And hopefully our children after us will take two or three more steps towards that, um, This idea that somehow we're going to rescue our culture if we just do the right things, probably not going to happen. But we can live as salt and light as we work together with a range of others in places where we believe the Bible speaks, and they may not believe the Bible speaks there, but they believe the issue is important. And we can work together with them for the common good because ultimately we're we're somewhat modest in what we're trying to achieve. Uh, along that line, I think as part of that, we have to see our loyalties a little bit differently. Um, all the way back to Augustine, uh, Christians have thought in terms of there are really, we're, we're, we're citizens of two kingdoms. Um, we belong to a heavenly kingdom that is our true home. Uh, and we're part of these earthly nation state, political arrangements. Um, and while we, we love our people and our, and our place, our ultimate loyalties are actually to the kingdom of God, uh, this, this heavenly kingdom uh, that centers on Jesus, um, his cross, and his empty tomb. And, and part of what Jesus is up to is forming a holy nation that's made up of a multiracial, multicultural people called church. I mean, the Bible is clear about that um, from, from beginning to end, that this is, in fact, God's holy nation. Uh, it's not America. It's not Tanzania, not China, not India, not France, not England. The true nation that God cares about is the people of God. It's you. It's the church. And that means that you may have more in common with with the Korean Presbyterian or the Kenyan Presbyterian here in Memphis than you have with your business partner. Because ultimately, your true nation is, is centered on Jesus. And so that's ultimately where our loyalties and our allegiances are to be. They're, they're to be first to this, this people called church, and then after that to our other identities and calling. I, I wonder how it would change the way we engage with one another in, on public issues uh, or in uh, places in, uh, like social media. If we, if we kept in mind that actually uh, this other person who uh, claims to be a believer is actually my brother or sister in Christ, I have far more in common with them in Jesus than on any, any other issue I'm going to face. How, how would that change the way we engage with a range of issues? How, how would that change the way we think about the public square? I think it would be pretty significant. And so as we think about what we're seeking to achieve, which is ultimately out of conviction, cooperating with others, and how we see our loyalties, namely our ultimate allegiance, is to Jesus' people, right? We want to love Jesus, which means we love what Jesus loves, and we love whom Jesus loves. We love Jesus' people. How then do we treat others? Well, two things. Um, certainly, above all, uh, we should be typified by civil speech. Um, the, the Apostle James, in James chapter 3, um, gives a, sober, uh, a sobering warning t- uh, concerning how we use our words. Um, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you n- know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. uh, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And so, how we use our words uh, ultimately is a is a is a uh, marker. Of whether this virtue of gentleness and civility and courtesy of honor has actually made its way in our hearts, because right out of the heart the mouth speaks if if our mouths or our fingers or our forward buttons um, are actually driven by um, anger, rage, bitterness, malice, uh, slander, libel, um, that's how we engage then then it's actually telling us something about our hearts. Uh, Of course, civil speech, um, it certainly includes uh, not cursing or demonizing others. Uh, Robert and I were talking actually today, uh, and I added this in to mention um, that our larger catechism is really helpful here. The ninth commandment actually speaks to how we talk. Um, but in the midst of talking about how we talk, one of the duties required by the ninth commandment, according to the uh, larger catechism, all of this about words in the middle of it, a charitable esteem of our neighbor. So, so how we use our words with civility, courtesy, gentleness, actually comes out of a heart that. that that has a, an esteem for our neighbors. Um, and of course, on the other side, if we uh, lie, slander, backbite, uh, detract, tailbear, worship, uh, whisper, scoff, revile, um, use rash, harsh, impartial, censuring, what are we not demonstrating? We're not demonstrating esteem for our neighbors. But, but civil speech not only involves how we use our words, if you you will, and not cursing or demonizing others, it also involves summarizing another's views in a way that is truthful and honors them. I I think this is something that's really important. Um, Honestly, I've been stunned um, in the ways that I think I say things relatively clear. I've been talking uh, before uh, congregations and groups since I was 16 years old. It's, it's been stunning over the last couple of years uh, to think that I've communicated clearly and to have those words come back to me in ways that, wow, you got that from what I said? Um, it, things even as simple as a couple of months ago, uh, I was in Mike Malone's Sunday School class answering questions concerning um, uh, the new church and some of the reasons why they left. And I simply was reporting Exactly what John Sartell told me, uh, that there was questions and differences over issues of how the session handled issues of race. Um, And uh, there were some questions about how, particularly some of the teaching elders felt about overtures that were before the General Assembly concerning um, those who were same-sex attracted. So questions over homosexuality. That's what I said. What came back to me a week later was, oh, so you're saying that they're racist. What? Like, no, I didn't say that at all. But what is that, ultimately? That's not just simply a failure to hear. That's actually uncivil. It's not decent. It's not courteous. Because it, it doesn't summarize what was said in a way that's truthful and honors the individual that said it. Now, I'm just using that example because it's, it's ready at hand for me, but, but you need to think about the ways that you interact with others. When you summarize others, whether it's what you hear on television, what you read in the newspaper, as you're talking with your uncle or aunt at the Thanksgiving t- table, and they're completely different politically from you, are you able to summarize their view in a way that's truthful to them and honors them? Or do you simply pick up on certain things and hammer it? Oh, that's socialist. Or that's communist. Or that's critical race theory. Or that's cultural Marxism, or whatever it may be. Doing so in those ways actually is not civil. Civil speech, courteous speech, the speech that James calls us to, that the Ninth Commandment calls us to, actually involves summarizing another's views in a way that's truthful that, that they would recognize, and honors them. So civil speech is, is, of course, part of what courtesy looks like, but also open hearts. Um, how do we develop a kind of compassion and empathy towards others where we treat them, golden rule stuff, right? We treat them as we want to be treated. Um, we we wouldn't want anybody to lie, slander, uh, rage, malice at us, hold bitterness and grudges and speak about us around them. So why would we do that to them, right? We, how do we have a kind of compassion and empathy so that as we listen to the other, even when we disagree, and we all are going to disagree, I mean, you know, the old joke is you put three Presbyterians in a room, you get four opinions, right? Um, think about that for a minute. Um, you know, we're all going to disagree, but... But how do, we, how do we have a kind of compassion and empathy with the others and curiosity that we try to actually understand what they're saying? That's, that's what this virtue is. This is how we engage one another in the public square. And then two, a kind of teachability, uh, a willingness to listen and learn from others not like me. Rather than simply writing something off uh, in, a, in a shorthand fashion, how do, we, how do we have a kind of willingness to listen and learn? I read a lot. Uh, In fact, I think my wife is deeply concerned that probably my likely way I will die is by all of the books on our bedside table collapsing on me while I'm asleep uh, and crushing me and smothering me because I have so many books on my bedside table, um, which would be a pretty great way to die, actually. Um, But so, but part of if you're going to read and engage, how do you read? Do you read looking just for things you disagree with? Or, or do you read with a kind of openness to the other to, to try to learn what you can, even though you might say, yeah, in the end, yeah, I didn't agree with that. I didn't buy that. Um uh, I don't I don't know if that really coheres with the biblical worldview. I mean, that of course that was the mistake that pulpit and pen made, was that some of the books that I assigned were simply for the purpose of creating that kind of teachability and, and willingness to listen for someone that we might disagree with profoundly and actually even pity a little bit because of their nihilistic worldview. Um, how do we have open hearts? That too is a, is a way of living out courtesy and civility. What, what, what would be the result of living this way? of engaging the public square just this way, whether it's on the abortion issue, or on immigration, as we're going to talk about this, this, uh, this month, uh, whether it's on issues of, of race and justice or, or economics or whatever it is, what's the result of, of engaging public issues and engaging the public square with, with courtesy and civility? Well, I think at least in some ways, we might make some progress to the common good. If everything's a zero-sum game, and I have to win, and you have to lose, or you have to win, and I have to lose, we're not going to make a whole lot of progress, right? We're just going to tally up the score at the end and, and wonder if we won our lost. Part of what we're trying to do, I would think, as we live out our lives in public is to move towards what our, our friend Steve Garber, who came a couple of years ago, calls proximate justice. Um, Ultimate justice comes at the end of the age. When Jesus returns and brings in the fullness of the kingdom of God, then true justice will be brought to bear. All of our our movement in this world towards truth, uh, beauty, goodness, justice is always proximate and penultimate. Um, But we do want to take a couple of steps toward it. Um, We don't believe in cultural transformation, if you will. Cultural transformation occurs when Jesus returns. But we can take a few steps toward that. Jesus actually calls us to lean in and love our neighbors uh, and in a modest way seek to do good where we are. Um, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. So we, we, we lean in with courtesy and civility, with graciousness and gentleness in order to make some progress towards the common good so that our neighbors are blessed, and and what we might find is that the modeling of such Christian virtues will, in fact, provide a platform for the gospel. I'll close with this: one of the things that uh, I've I've replayed over and again was a, a, a listening into a conversation that a couple of my now young adult children were having as we were hiking down a mountain outside of Atlanta. Yeah, there's only one mountain, it's Stone Mountain. Uh, So we were hiking down the mountain, it's Stone Mountain, and I was just listening in, uh, and they were talking about the news of the day. Uh, And and, and one of the things that really hit me, uh, and these are PCA preacher kids, uh, members of PCA churches now, of on their own, married in their own PCA church, right? These are, this is the next generation. So I'm not even talking about lost people. Um, and my kids are saying, like, you know, talking about uh, culture war uh, approaches to public issues and questions about, uh, you know, what happened in 2020 and what happened January 6, 2021. And, and one of the things that came clear, listening to my adult children, and those of you who have young adult children, you may have, may have the same experiences, is if we don't begin to treat others with cur- courtesy and civility and gentleness, we'll lose the next generation. They'll begin to question whether we really believe this gospel that we proclaim. We can talk about Jesus being gentle and lowly all we want, but if we come across harsh and angry in the way we deal with public issues, they'll see us as ultimate hypocrites and walk away from Jesus. I really do believe that modeling these virtues as we engage public issues in the public square actually allow our children, (laughs) um, uh, those outside of the church, to see, oh, yeah, I, I don't agree with those Christians, but they're, they look like Jesus because Jesus said of himself, I am gentle and lowly of heart. So hopefully as we talk about some of these issues over the next few weeks, we'll keep in mind these are the virtues uh, that we desire to model as, as we live out the call of Jesus here in Memphis and across our nation. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do desire above all else to live out your life before others. This fruit of the Spirit that starts with love, joy, and peace and ends with gentleness and self-control. Lord, we desire that that fruit in our hearts and lives. But Lord, we we know that that fruit's not just for us. It's for our neighbors. It's for, for our publics. It's for the larger public square. Um, as we live out these virtues uh, before a watching world and so point others to who you are and how glorious you actually are. So Lord, please, do your work in our hearts and lives. Shape and mold us into the image of Christ and may the mind of Christ our Savior dwell in us from day to day. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.